Wednesday, May 14th, 2014 from Slate. This is The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, Cesar Chavez loved Diet Right Cola. Now, this fact was not unearthed. It was previously known. But in a new biography by Miriam Powell, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, here she writes, he went through phases where he ate only matzah and Diet Right Cola. Oh, maybe I buried the lead there. The guy loved matzah. He asked farm workers to offer a palanca, which he translated as a small sacrifice. If I were making a palanca, Chavez explained, I'd stop drinking Diet Right. That's a palanca. So, I know that LBJ also loved Fresca. I don't know why I'm attuned. Me, Mike Pesca, attuned to Fresca News, just happened to be. David Plotz is always talking about Fresca. The dude loves Fresca. I know LBJ had a Fresca fountain installed in the White House. So now I needed another 60s icon to pair with a carbonated beverage and uh, a perhaps unusual carbonated beverage. Came across the fact that John Glenn was on the board of directors of Royal Crown Cola. That didn't quite get there, but now here it is. Neil Young, how he wrote the song Sugar Mountain, all right? He was hanging around in a hotel in Ontario. He had just met Stephen Stills. Said Young, of his time in Ontario with Stephen Stills, mainly he was the funniest person I'd met in years. He didn't have another gig until next weekend, so he stayed in Thunder Bay, and we played, and he took us to see Buffalo. We lived on cheeseburgers and A&W root beer. There's the trifecta, Neil Young and A&W, Cesar Chavez and Diet Right, and LBJ and Fresca. All right, on the show today, Willa Paskin will be here to talk about Game of Thrones, and the spiel will be sort of a signature issue for me. But first, who else isn't on the terrorist watch list? As U.S. military advisors try to rescue Nigerian schoolgirls who were taken by the now-designated terrorist group Boko Haram, there's been a blowback because a few years ago when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she had the opportunity to designate Boko Haram as a terrorist organization. She did not do so. The FBI, the CIA at the time wanted that designation. A bunch of professors and others said that that would be a bad idea. Now a lot of Republicans and people in Republican media are being extremely critical of this decision. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers have said that the Obama administration is trying to fight Boko Haram with hashtags. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich has called for congressional hearings. To give you another idea, Rush Limbaugh, always good for one of these examples, said that Clinton didn't designate the group as terrorists because its members are black. Okay, maybe putting Rush aside, let's talk about the decision then. And what is this terrorist watch list? How much of a difference does it make? We're joined by Daniel Byman. He's a professor at Georgetown. He focuses on counterterrorism. He was a member of the 9-11 Commission staff. Hello, Professor Byman. Hello. So the designation, uh, in retrospect, it certainly seems that these horrible people should have been on the list. Was it clear at the time that Boko Haram were terrorists? Um, At the time, this was seen as a nasty group, but it was still an open question of whether it was going to be more al-Qaeda-oriented, for lack of a better term. So not, you know, following orders from bin Laden and Zawahiri, but really an organization that would be going after Western targets in Nigeria that would be going beyond the kind of standard civil warfare. And that, that to me, was an open question at the time, but I was not privy to the internal debates. Who's not on the list now that we may be surprised about if we pay attention to some of the bad people in the world? Ooh, that's actually a good question that I didn't particularly uh, prepare for. Um, what I would say is uh, what often happens on this list is you have groups that splinter, and some of the groups move in a good way towards more peaceful organization or at least towards violence that is directed at, say, soldiers rather than civilians. 
Uh, but often you have groups that splinter, and uh, parts of the splinters become much nastier. So you have new names, new organizations uh, popping up from time to time. And we're likely going to see some that are in places like Egypt, that are in places like uh, Mali and Algeria, where you have these uh, factions showing up from time to time. And uh, they'll, after they're vetted, after people evaluate them, they're likely to show up. I was just looking at one current flashpoint, South Sudan. So there you have Dinka tribesmen, you have Nur tribesmen. That's the name of the group, N-U-E-R in English. And neither of them are designated as terrorists, and maybe they shouldn't be, but it doesn't mean they're not killing scores of people in South Sudan. And and this is always a problem when you come to the list, which is uh, you have almost every guerrilla group in history... um, is involved in the killing of civilians. Um, yet it's sometimes a mistake to kind of put the counterterrorism lens on this. Uh, just to take perhaps an odd historical example, uh, we don't think of the Viet Cong in the context of counterterrorism. We think of them as fighting a guerrilla war, as fighting a civil war, and, but they also did terrorism. And there are going to be groups that have multiple activities, but their primary focus is fighting an internal conflict and doesn't have anything to do with the United States or the West more broadly. And in those cases, I think it's appropriate to move slowly um, to declare them terrorists, even though they do kill civilians in their own country. Yeah. And the other thing I think we should talk about is even if there was a debate how big they were a few years ago when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, you know, her stated reason or the people who defend her stated reason was by designated them at a terrorist group, you'd give them some prestige or some you'd some outsized influence. It was almost a designation that they could draw on. Is there anything to that logic? Um, I don't think there's too much to that. I think, for better or for worse, Boko Haram doesn't really care too much what the State Department or the United States more broadly thinks of it in terms of classifying it. It regards the United States as generally hostile, and it's focused on the government of Nigeria and being labeled a terrorist by the United States, I don't think really matters much to this particular group. And the last question is, had they been labeled a terrorist group, is there any reason to think that they wouldn't have killed the people they've killed, that they wouldn't have been able to kidnap these schoolgirls, that they wouldn't still be a thorn in the side for, you know, the Nigerian government and anyone who is outraged by the things they do? Uh, No. If you look at Boko Haram, almost all their activities are driven by their own rather peculiar beliefs the conditions in Nigeria, the corruption there, the brutality of Nigerian government forces, and the broader tension in between Muslim and Christian populations there. And U.S. actions in Nigeria have been limited and have been limited since we designated them. So it may have had a minor impact on their funding and certainly would have been the right signal to send. But in the end, I think their rather brutal and horrible track record wouldn't be any different. I know the current debate is being pitched in partisan terms and Democrats could say, oh, this is just after the fact finding something to blame or this is just after the fact pinning the blame on who we perceive will be the next presidential candidate. But then again, our elected officials should be held accountable for bad mistakes. So perhaps not the actual tone of the criticism, but is there value to the criticism um, and the charges that are being leveled about the decisions that were made a few years ago? I certainly think it's uh, worth having serious hearings, and I'll stress the word serious, to look at the broader question of when we list a group and why we list a group and see why Boko Haram was not listed. Um, What I can't imagine, at least to my own knowledge, is that this was a political decision in any way. This is not a group that has any constituency outside uh, a small part of Nigeria. 
So it's not like some of the other groups, um, such as those involved with Iran, where you see more partisan battles on the question. So to me, it's probably going to be a very interesting technical question and a question about the effectiveness of these lists, but not one that comes down to politics. Daniel Byman, professor at Georgetown. He studies counterterrorism. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I've given you three days. Enough with these spoiler alerts. We're going to talk about Game of Thrones, and I'm going to talk to Willa Paskin, who's Slate's TV critic. Hello, Willa. Hey. So everyone comes up to you in the Slate office everywhere and says, oh, did you just watch the Game of Thrones? And I say, yes, I just watched Game of Thrones. <laughs> and do, and uh, they want you to cavell as much as they are, right? And then I, and then I sit there and I don't cavell, yeah. and, I fe- and I failed. Yeah. But then I, then, I, then I usually pretend that I was really excited. Right. But you could ask those non-leading questions like, you know, and how did that make you feel? Yes, as their TV therapist. That's my job. We, I think, know how Game of Thrones is making everyone feel this year. There's a lot of discussion specifically about its depiction of rape or its depiction of the fictional world of Westeros and how rape is viewed. You know, did that bother you? Do you have any thoughts on the various depictions? Well... I think one of the things that impresses me about Game of Thrones is how much the creators of that show do not care about the people who are complaining about sex position and nudity and rape. They're like, this is a part of the DNA of the show, like violence. Obviously, there is a critical class that is very observant of all the nudity, but clearly a huge number of HBO subscribers want that in their television. A huge number of premium cable subscribers want that in their television, and we're just going to give it to them. And we're yeah. not going to be caught up in feeling guilty about that. It's part of the book. It's part of the show. Done. Um, and part of me kind of admires that chutzpah, like the just from season to season, absolutely not caring, putting girls in hot tubs within three minutes of, you know, the show starting, all that stuff. But this season, the sort of the heavy prevalence of rape, especially as as background noise, as literally, background, like literally shots yeah. in the background, um, has been a lot. You know, yeah. I, I think that especially so I sort of knowing where some of the storylines are going, I suspect there's going to be some kind of payoff on it. But they are really, really putting it in our face. And they are also sort of requiring an audience that is engaged as TV audiences are now to react to it, as opposed to it just being some sort of like frivolous thing that you can enjoy or not enjoy. It's an interesting thing with Game of Thrones in that there is this source material and that could be a rebuttal to any criticism of Game of Thrones. And yet at the same time, you know, you can't say uh, with like with the rape discussion, well, that's what it was like historically since it is in a fictional universe. Yeah. But you can say, as George R. R. Martin does, that he's trying to convey a certain time period, even though it's inflected with magic and trying to get across a point of brutality that probably is true historically speaking this is an extremely brutal violent world in which sexual violence is extremely important to it's like the larger dysfunction like there there's a civil war that's happening and so much of it is built on sexual violence is built on like the targaryens crimes that threat to all of the female characters is obviously is an important part of the show so it's like if you know that rape has to be in the show thematically because it really does and because it is this horrible thing and the show doesn't shy away from any other really horrible things, then it's just a question of sort of how it's handled. And then you're doing that thing, which I think we do now with 
extreme frequency because we're much more aware of the people who make TV shows where you're trying to read intention into right. the people who are making it. Like, are their intentions good? Are they being thoughtful about this? Or is this totally purient and lascivious right. and just supposed to get everybody off? However, when you add on to it the fact that we both agree that a lot of the nudity was just there for commercial reasons, right? Mm-hmm. That's an indictment of the purity of the a creator's intention. So why can't, you know, rape be sort of subsumed in that discussion? I mean, I think it's also about Game of Thrones is that I think if you're going to give the most positive read on the intentions of everyone on the show, is it regularly basically wants to implicate us, the audience, in the kind of facocta moral swamp that is Game of Thrones, right? So you watch and you see all these things that are happening and at some point you want someone to murder someone. You know, you want Arya to stab somebody. You you wish for someone to die, then someone dies and it's all more complicated. But there's these moments where you become, you realize that the choices are so limited and so screwed up that you become murderous, you become vengeful. Yeah. And, and so rape then becomes a part of that universe. The really close first person stuff that he does in that book is sort of a little more effective at making everybody more nuanced like the, the he the whole thing he does in the book is he takes like jamie becoming a narrator yeah he takes this guy who threw a little kid out of building and then he makes you so close to his head that you kind of like him or cersei so, someone like that and in a tv show you're never as close and you end up just falling back on kind of like instinctual how you watch a hero tropes. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they become types i mean he, cersei is you know drawn out but at the end of the day, she's kind of a type. She's kind of the blonde <laughs> villainess. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about the dragons. So you come back in a couple weeks and we'll discuss dragons. They will be and the Mad size Men. of this building by then. Yeah. <laughs> you can no more control dragons than. What is she up to, by the way? She's mother of dragons. She's breaker of chains. She's a terrible actress. She's the lord of all indoors. Really? <laughs> I, we can say this for another day. I have really strong feelings about Danny. You think she's a terrible actress? That is my strong feeling. Yeah. And those are fighting words. We're gonna like I'm gonna get in trouble. Yeah. I invite the discussion on Facebook.com slash slate gist. And let's have this discussion item. Worst actress, Danny Game of Thrones, or um January Jones. Game of Ooh. Thrones v January Jones. Beautiful blonde women. Why do we think they can't act? It's not fair. It's not fair to the beautiful blonde women. I, I wash my hands of that. <laughs> I'm 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 fearful for my life. All right. Willa Paskin covers TV for Slate, and I, th- I hope every other week Willa and maybe another sparring partner and I will be in to talk about all the TV shows, including Judge Judy. Do you know she's the highest paid person on television? She's a hero. Yeah. Thanks, Willa. Thank you. And now, the spiel. So, Michigan Congressman John Conyers has served 25 terms in Congress. He'd sure like to make it a 26th. There's just one problem. Veteran Congressman John Conyers does not, does not have enough signatures to appear on the upcoming primary ballot. This outrages me. Outrages me! Let me tell you, though, what I find ridiculous. What Mike finds ridiculous just might surprise you. What is so risible about having to collect the signatures of 2,000 registered voters to get your name on the ballot isn't the part about getting your name on the ballot or the 2,000 or the registered voters. It's signatures. Signatures are ridiculous. 
The other day, I went to a pharmacy and I bought some gluten-free beer, a cell phone charger, a performance t-shirt that wicks away moisture, an over-the-counter 12-hour nasal decongestant, and a bottle of two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. I think that we can all agree that those items in their own categories represent pinnacles of modern technology, not to mention, when taken together, the ingredients to a very ambitious night out. I paid for these items by swiping a piece of plastic through a small computer that is in turn linked to a larger computer computer that can access all of my credit information from a central database. At the end of this process, that would make Copernicus, Da Vinci, Newton, and Edison all weep or stare in gape-jawed wonder at the sheer pace of progress I was asked, asked, in this culmination, this orgy of modernism, a consumerist pay-on to our advanced epic, I was asked to sign a piece of paper a signature, my mark, to write my name, but all special-like, as our forefathers might have done when they drove their mutton to market under the protection of their vassal lord. And in the rest of the world, they don't even require a signature. It's a pin. But here, back in the pharmacy, when I was balancing a phone charger and beer and t-shirts and a shampoo, I clutched the pen with my left hand and I scrawled. I actually have the receipt here. I wrote, let me read this. Angufer. All right, I actually, no, it looks more like Ypsilanti Underwood. I have no idea what I wrote. And sometimes when it's the kind of credit card machine where you sign on the screen, I just make a thin squiggly line and then a barely perceptible dot. And while that may be taken as profundity in quipus, the knotted string language of the Incans, in English it means nothing. And by nothing, I mean the epitome of identity assessment and affirmation of intent. In the last week, the Scottish Premier Football League, the Board of Education in Buffalo, New York, and the Oil Ministry of Ghana were un done or embroiled in tales of forged signatures. Have you ever heard of the power of signatures actually stopping a crime or theft? Wait, hold on. Uh, yes, Mr. Pesca, your credit card was scanned in a shop right in Des Moines at the same time that you were buying gluten-free beer in New York. But a quick-thinking $8 an hour clerk fell back on her forensic training and thwarted the crime. Wow, that is great. Now, who is this? Um, it's FBI Director James B. Comey. Click. If we really wanted to assert that 2,000 Michiganders in the 13th District wanted John Conyers on the ballot, there are a lot better ways than signatures. We could fight it out in court for a month, or we could just call the 2,000 people on the list. Maybe if we want to be technical, ask what their mother's maiden name is. Maybe go for two-step verification. Maybe we could ask for a hair to confirm their DNA. Maybe ask them what's the first name of their pet. lot better ways than signatures, but no, we're still using signatures. It is, I suppose, a sign of the times. Medieval times, but the times. All right, if it lets us go out on the Mountain Goats covering a Swedish supergroup, that's fine with me. I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Love is demanding without understanding. I saw the sign. And that is it, producer Andrea Salenzi, whose signature looks like A-W-C-O and then a tiny roller coaster produces the show. Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcast Signature, is actually Sanskrit for Yngwie Malmsteen. 
You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Here is the breakdown of stars last time I looked from five to one, descending. 654012. So, 65 five star reviews, that's good. It also comports with what we know about why people go to Amazon and iTunes to give ratings, like no one gives a three star rating. Yeah, I don't really feel that strong about it, so therefore I'm going to log into iTunes. To get a daily email from us when the show's out, go to slate.com slash gist email. Just for the record, I don't really drink gluten free beer. It's just to, you know, represent that which is modern. But thanks for listening. I saw the sign, and it opens up my eyes. I saw the sign.